I'm having a good time. You are? Yeah. I can tell. And we are rolling too. Terrible happy talks. Terrible happy talks. Terrible happy talks. Terrible happy talks. Today's guest is Davida Sweeney. Davida is a wife, mother, and co-founder of the non-profit organization, The Generous and the Grateful, an Australian-based charity that sources pre-loved essential household items to help people rebuild their lives after tragedy and trauma. Born and raised in southern Spain, married to an Australian, and currently residing in Bali with her husband and three children, Davida is a self-confessed kindness connector, which I, I love that call. In 2019 alone, the generous and the grateful organization redirected 94 tons of household essential items from unnecessary landfill. They have furnished two properties for women's community shelters from repurposed goods, converted 406 empty rental houses into safe and and inviting homes, which has provided shelter for almost 900 people as they rebuild their lives. Inspiring and impressive, simply put, they are in the business of connecting kindness and providing community to those that have lost theirs. Today, Davida is with me to share her experiences, challenges, and hopes for the future. Davida Sweeney, welcome. Thank you very much. A beautiful introduction. (laughs) Thank you so much. I tell you, I'm always like, my heart's always racing every time with that. I don't know why. Yeah. Yeah. Putting yourself out there. I know. Does it feel weird like hearing someone, like a random guy like me talking about you and what you've done? It feels a bit like it's a third person that we're just talking about. It doesn't feel very personal, to be honest. Um, I guess it's a part of my life that we just discussed, but it's, we have many parts, so yeah. Yeah. It's true, we do. Um, do you think you could maybe like describe to us right now sort of where we are generally and where we're sitting and, and talking right now? Yeah, we are in my home of my family and I, um, where we're currently living in Bali. Um, we're in a room that is a room that we selected of the ones that are available. It's a it's a home that's half open, half closed it's has it got the best air conditioning in there in the house it's a closed room with air conditioning oh, thank god i don't know what like today uh, okay bali's hot we all know bali's hot and i've lived here for almost two years but today was just extra hot mm. like i couldn't deal with it yeah i i sometimes don't know if it's me or if it's outside depends what i'm doing i'm like is it extra hot or have i been being crazy um so yeah it did feel hot are are you adapting um i think i'm in that space that i don't even know what i don't know and i'm just trying to embrace that and just be present and uh, bring myself to all the situations a lot of challenges both personal and um you know logistical when you move a family and you try and set up uh but i think you know we're 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 happy so yeah, I suppose we're adapting. It's it's a long path. How do you feel your children have um, coped with the, the change of location? Um, well, we just came from about six months of being on the road. So that's a big, for us, really, this feels like we're settling. It's a really nice feeling. There was an amazing, we had an amazing experience. But there were many challenges with constantly being on the road. We were homeschooling. 
we were trying to work. Um, the kids were, we were quite isolated. We didn't really have a community. Um, and so there were many amazing things about that. It was incredible for us as a unit, but it was also a lot of challenges. So I think for all of us, we feel really grateful to have a home. We feel really grateful to be entering a community through the Green School. Um, yeah, so I think it's been really positive for all of us because we know what we were missing. Has it brought you closer together as a family? Traveling, you mean? Yeah. Or, um, yeah, I think, I, I, I believe so. I mean, I think there's so many changes as a family. There's changes that happen at the age of that, that the kids are. So there's different parts that they each go through individually, not necessarily by the situation we're in, but just because of where they're at on yeah. their path um, and in their journey. So I definitely do feel like it was this beautiful time together and also for the, the three boys to really rely on each other. It was a beautiful time. Um, so I, I'd like to think that in hindsight, we will see the incredible benefits that that time had. Sometimes you're not always aware of them when you're in it. So. Did you have moments when you were traveling with your family and, and young children, youngish, hmm. um, and did you think, oh, I feel like I'm just moving chaos around? Yes. Yeah. I definitely had moments that I just wanted, I threw my hands up. I was like, I can't do this. And my husband would look at me like, we kind of have to. It's like, okay, okay, I can do it. So which, which part of the world did you travel to? Uh, we were mostly here in, in Asia. We did a lot of, um, well, Bali we were in quite a bit, just traveling a bit. And then um, we were in Java, West Java, quite a bit, which we really enjoyed. And then Vietnam and Myanmar. So not, not a huge amount. We kind of stayed put quite a bit. So we tried to actually kind of settle a little bit. So we didn't do a huge number of places, but yeah. What, in, what inspired the idea to do that, though? Was it for the children and give them a broad perspective? Um, I think because um, we were in Sydney. We had this, the kids in Sydney. My husband's from there. And um, we always kind of felt like we were going to step out at some stage. Um, and it's funny, we laugh about it now, but it wasn't like a decision we said we're doing it. It kind of just rolled. And next thing we knew, we kind of put our house up for rent on Airbnb and then we bought tickets and then we, you know, obviously we'd worked out our work stuff and schools. Um, but it was just this rolling thing that happened. The next thing we knew we were going. So it wasn't like this, aha, we're doing it. That's it. Here's the line. It just rolled. Our life just rolled out of Sydney. Were you in a, in, a, in a place in Sydney where maybe like you had been doing the same routine for many years and felt, felt a desire to break out of, of that routine? Like was it, was it a desire to break routine? Um, that was probably part of it. I think, I think a lot of it, to be honest, was about raising our head. I think um, the world is big. The world is really beautiful. And there are so many ways to live. And I think... For Sam and I, we had kind of experienced a lot of that, but the kids hadn't had that real experience. We, we go back to see my family in Spain quite often, which is a big part of who they are. But to actually live in another way, to actually make friends that are from around the world, to actually, it's just about opening. And I think travel allows you to more easily open. It doesn't mean that people that stay put can't be open, but it just helps. I think traveling helps. Does mm. it really does? So you're from southern Spain. Uh, which area in particular? Um, so I'm I'm a bit of a mix, but I I grew up in southern Spain, uh, in near Malaga. So it's the southern tip of Spain in a town called Marbella. Um, 
and it's yeah, it's it's beautiful. And you it's grew fun. up there as a child. So I grew up there from the age of ten. I I was born in the Canary Islands, um, and then my family moved to Italy, and I grew up outside of Italy in a little town outside of Florence. Sorry in a little town until um, I was 10, and I went to a little public Italian school. I'm one of eight children. So um, we grew up there, kind of our early childhood. And then when I was 10, my family moved to Spain. So where they still are, most of them. How would you describe your early childhood? Was it a, a magical time? Um, I, had a, I had a lot of love in my life. My parents... Um, chose a path in their life that was different to many. So my parents are actually both American, but they moved to Europe and they were part of, uh, they were kind of missionaries. Um, and they were part of a group at the time that was, you know, you know, it was the late seventies and they were, you know, opening up and doing all the things that, and so they moved to Europe through this group. And when I was about two, they decided to leave this group um, and but they still love the idea of living in a community. So there were many things that they wanted to leave about this commune group, um, but they still love the, the deepness of what they felt and how they believed and also um, the idea of community. So they actually moved in with another family that left the same group at the same time. So we grew up with four parents and eight kids. So the children we fought, we feel we're all siblings, but we're not all necessarily blood related. But we grew up like that. We grew up together. Yeah. So were they part of like a religious? Was it a religious group? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was. And they, and then they um they decided to sort of break away. And did you go to like pro, like elementary school in in Italy, or yes. were you homeschooled as well? No, we went to the local, local public, public school. school. Yeah, the local public what, school. What, in what town. was that like? It's beautiful. I mean. It, Italy is a beautiful country. The people are beautiful. The way of living is beautiful in its simplest form. It's a really um, beautiful culture and, and area in the world. So I have amazing memories. We grew up on a farm. We, we were just doing what kids do, you know, in a beautiful way. So, yeah, I feel very lucky. No way. And, like, it just sounds like the food is always so good there. <laughs> do, you, do you have memories of eating really good food? Um, we definitely have a huge food culture in our family. Um, f- eating is really the core of of my kind of original family. Um, and everything happens around food. And I think that's probably from Italy. Yeah, <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. Like even now with your family, is there, is there a food culture in your family? Like, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, we. I just find it's a moment to pause. You know, breakfast is rushed, lunch, everyone just does what they do. But dinner is just the time to come together. Yeah. Sometimes people talk, sometimes they don't. But um, sometimes I talk all by myself at the table with all boys. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I find it, it's really important. It's just a pause in the day. I yeah. agree. Yeah. yeah. Actually, our house in Australia, we, um, we renovated it just before we moved to Bali, which in hindsight was weird, but anyway. Um, and with the kitchen, my wife and I d- definitely wanted to z- design it as like a learning space. Mm. So the... The island bench in the middle had the, had the cooktop in the island, so the kids could sit around it. Was mm. the idea, and we could be demonstrating how to how to do things. Yeah, nice. It was really cool. Yeah. And, then, and then we moved to Bali, which was. <laughs> but we'll go back there. <laughs> yeah. So like, um, so growing up in Italy, going to public school, um, what kind of student were you? 
I was pretty diligent. I think um, I'm. I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. I could just tell. <laughs> I was the. Um, I'm fourth of my siblings. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of other spots were taken, so I kind of took the spot of just, just kind of go flying under the radar a little bit and so, just doing what I needed to do. So you're right in the middle of the eight. Yeah. Like, what's it like having eight siblings? Did you feel like were you fighting for your food sometimes and stuff like that? Yeah. I think we probably were. Um, again, I, I think I flew under the radar there. My, my brother that's literally one year older than me is like twice my size. Yeah, right. I think something happened there. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think I feel so lucky, like really what? deeply. Why? Um, I guess we are all really close still. We have this under, underlying net that we support each other with. And... Um, they're definitely my closest friends. And I can say all of them. Like, we all have different times in our life that we're more connected in different ways. And, but we all genuinely like each other. And that's something that's... It's pretty amazing. Yeah. So I feel really lucky. No sibling rivalry? Oh, of course. But I think it's, it's sibling rivalry is okay when it's out. And it's, it's spoken. And we're kind of loud. And we get together. And we... Everyone kind of voices what they think and what they feel. But it's not... It's not hidden. So I think it's okay. Just down yeah, there. it's. Have you seen it like a difference between European culture and Australian culture in that respect, where like Europeans are very like, if you've got a problem, you get it out and you just say it, hmm. as opposed to Australia. Have you noticed any differences there? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm actually asking you that question from my personal experience. But hmm. I don't know. Uh, really. You know, I like I think I said before we we started this. I I, I really don't like making generalizations. But because there are so many types of people in every culture and there's some people that are really close to their family and really connected and really committed and others, you know, even in Spain that don't. But as a general, I suppose there's something very, um, there's a pretty strong thread in Europe that still connects generations. I think in a lot of Europe, you are much more um, open to having cross-generation contact that's ongoing um, in Australia, I sometimes feel it, it can be like, you know, this is where the kids hang out, this is where the old people hang out, and if you're 20s, you're here, and if you're in your 30s, you're here. It's, I don't know if it's ageist is the right word, but there's a real kind of grouping that is isolating more than, uh, more than kind of bringing people in. It actually isolates people. Yeah, I mean, again, from personal experience, when I, when I was in Europe, uh, I was actually in Malta, and I remember going out one night to like a nightclub type bar thing and there was a lot of 20-year-olds partying but then there were elderly people also there having a drink. Mm. And I remember actually thinking like that's really, mm. that's really different to where I'm from. Yeah. So. No, it's really – I'm always – every time I go back I see, you know, groups of older people out having drinks, having fun and I find in Australia you don't always it, – it's, you don't see that as often. I'm not sure but there's a lot of um, – I think the way that aged care is done in Australia is tricky. Um, yeah, so I think it's hard. And I think you lose the amazing benefit of having cross-generation contact, you know, for kids to be able to be with older people, the wisdom that they can have, the joy that it gives the older people. Like this kind of natural mix in the town square is something pretty strong in a community. And, yeah, I think it's... Is, is it more common for the grandparents to be actually... to, to live with their children and, and the children take care of them in their, in their old age? I, I think it has been. I think um, 
the whole world is a little bit uh, is changing. Probably, I think you know maybe it, it was much more, and I think it still probably is much more than Australia. Possibly, I, I don't have statistics on that, but um, I think it's a much more common uh, option to have a family move back in if people have the space and yeah. It's so. interesting. Mm. So um, after you finished like your early years of education in Italy, did you go straight to high school in Italy or did you move from there? So when I was 10, my parents, for multiple reasons, thought, you know, we actually want to take the kids and set up somewhere else. Um, part of it was the education that we were given. You know, they just thought they wanted something a bit more open. Again, they wanted to open us up a, a bit more. Um, and then part of it was also... Weather, I think some of it. It's quite cold in the winters um, in Italy, in that part in Tuscany. Um, and so I think there were multiple things that just made them think, actually, we want to pick up and do something different. And they basically packed up the house. We had a camper van and um, an old Volkswagen van, and they packed up everything we had, and we got a boat um, from Italy to uh, Spain. And we got off the boat and went and kind of started a new life. Um, wow. They had friends in the south of Spain, so they'd gone and checked and thought, yeah, this is what we can do. And yeah, Was that like, as a 10-year-old, was that unsettling? Look, I, don't th- I think we just had our unit. I think, I don't recall, I don't remember it being unsettling. It doesn't bring any feelings for me of like, oh my, it was exciting. I think it was really an exciting time for all of us. And I think the benefit of having so many siblings is that you're kind of safe no matter where you go. You're in a clan you're in a tribe so you have that uh cushion it's just interesting for me to hear that because my wife and i have been talking a lot about this you know being i guess expats Mm. and um talking about how amazing how amazingly our children have adapted to a new way of life and we were actually saying that like as long as they're with us i think they're they're pretty happy. Mm. But I wonder if that still transfers into a high school age child. Um, look, we've just done the move now and I think it gets harder. You know, I think probably also if I think about my siblings, I was 10. It's still an age that you're really just looking to your parents for the things you need. Um, as you get older, you start looking out much more. And probably for my older brothers and sisters, it was harder. Um, but... Uh, I think even that, I think hard is actually very good. I don't, I don't have an issue with things being hard. I can see it's hard for the children. Yeah. You, why? You want them to suffer? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> no, I, I, I just think it's around, that's part of life. And sometimes if you don't stretch, you don't know how far you can go. If you, if you allow that glass ceiling to stay there, you, you don't ever really know how far you can go. You don't know you can come back from hardship. Um, and I don't mean, you know, I will protect my kids and I know that we were so protected and it's not about putting them in situations that will be challenging for no reason. But I think as a parent, you can help steer the ship um, and whether or not they like it then, there's something, you do it with your best intention, you might not get it all right, but there's something that's okay about them not agreeing then and there with what you're deciding for the family as a whole. Yeah. There's a saying in Australia where they say, oh, you don't want to wrap them in cotton wool. Mm. Um, and I, I understand that, that saying, but now I have children myself. 
I just feel like I want to protect them yeah. from everything. Yeah. And uh, I don't think you really understand it till you have your yeah. own. Um, but uh, it's yeah. just really interesting to hear someone who's living it right now with a teenager. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, and you said hard is good and I agree because in my opinion we're all going to suffer to some degree and I think building that resilience – Hmm. Early, I think maybe maybe really helpful later on. Yeah, I think to just know that the story can dip and come back. I think that's something that you can only experience. I don't think you can learn it from a book that you may crumble, but you'll come back, or you may the the road might dip and it'll come up again. You know, I think when you go through it, and if you go through it early, it's it's then part of your the way you process the rest of your life. It's somewhere back there that you're able to kind of draw on that and and know you'll come back even when you're down. Cool. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Is that I mean, are these philosophies that you've you've said to yourself throughout your life? Or are they just things you've just developed over from your experiences? Uh, well I've got no idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um It's just how you feel. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. just how I feel, I suppose. I you know, and you know, maybe you ask me in two years and I'll feel differently. I'm not sure. Uh it's just how I feel today from what I know today. That's I guess. cool. Yeah. So you get to Spain and then you start going to school there? Yes. And you went to high school in Spain? We did. So excuse my ignorance, you speak Italian and Spanish. Yes. And so you were easily able to, to adapt to that language change? Yeah, we ended up in Spain going to an English school, an international school in okay. Spain. So we, we spoke English at home always, but we had no idea how to write English or read English. But we spoke fluent English because our parents always spoke English to us. Um, so when we got to Spain, we had to learn how to write and read in English. Um, and we also learned Spanish, which I think I think in hindsight we probably just spoke Italian for like a year. And then and then we They're very similar. They're pretty similar. But you could you could write in Italian? Yes. Read it read and write in Italian. Yes. Could speak English fluently but couldn't read and write in English. Yes. And then learn Spanish. But you were probably speaking Italian. That's so yeah. it's just for me that just sounds so interesting. Like it's so foreign to me. Like because Again, where I'm from, it's very much mm. one language. I mean, I think the greatest gift you can give a child is having them learn a language without them even knowing. Yeah. A kid picks up a language in, in they don't even know they're learning. I never, I never learned a language from my, in my understanding. I'm actually here now, and in my mind, I'm like, oh, I'm pretty good with languages, and I'm trying to learn Bahasa, and I'm like, it is just not going in. It's not, it's not computing. It's not, it's very, and I know everyone says it's simple, and I need to put the time, and I need to, you know, and so it's a priority that I'm, I'm going to do. But it's like, to learn a language, actually learn a language, is very different from absorbing a language as a child. It's it's a really different thing. Yeah. Because I guess my first thought was you're multilingual as it is, so picking up another language yeah, would be no I thing. <laughs> but I guess I guess when you're a child, your brain is so fresh and malleable mm. and those neurological pathways are ready to be sort of mowed in. Yeah, and I think too there's probably inhibitions and courage and um, all, all sorts of things probably that as an adult you start having different 
things about, even when you don't know it. You know, it's interesting. Like I've always had a strong desire to learn another language. And when I've traveled at times, I've really tried to learn the local language and, but never really been in those places long enough to become fluent. Mm. But uh, since I've moved to Bali, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm definitely learning Bahasa Indonesian and I get lessons and um, I really practice it on a daily basis. And what I'm discovering is obviously it's, it's exercising a different part of my brain, but I'm finding for the first time in my life like more creative inspiration than I've ever had. Mm. And I actually kind of feel like it's because I am learning another language and, mm. and I'm, I'm forcing my mind to work outside of its perceived capabilities. Yeah, well, I'm sure I don't all know. that brain plasticity stuff is something pretty incredible. So yeah. there's probably something going on there. There's got to be something yeah. going on. I'm, I'm not a neuroscientist or anything, but I don't know. <laughs> You're not? What? <laughs> I thought this podcast was about neuroscience. Come on, David. <sighs> um, okay, so you, like I said, you went to high school in Spain. Like, how would you describe those years? Um, I guess. It's hard. I think high school, you know, I, again, we, um, I think it was a beautiful school. We had a beautiful family. My father passed away when I was 14. So I think when you ask me that question, that's probably quite a big part that, you know, flashes before me about, you know, probably was quite a blanket over a few years of that time. Um, that was probably the dominating story. Um, so, yeah, but... You know, I think it's it's still home where we grew up. They, my family, the three other parents still live in the home we grew up in, in Spain. Um, we still, you know, it's it's home. And so there's roots there. I think it's a very transient place, the south of Spain. There's a lot of tourism. There's a lot of expat communities. And um, so there's always movement. So there's not necessarily like growing up in a small town that people have lived all their life and they'll always be there. Um, yeah. Cool. Like, I mean, with the high school, like your your time at high school, though, like, was it a a fun time? A, a, like, because being an adolescent is tricky. Like, were you a good student at high school? Uh, I was. I was a good student. I think I really enjoyed the studious part. My family always make fun of me of you know I didn't. I don't know. I didn't. I was upset because I didn't bring my homework home or something. Like you know, I think there was all there's all these kind of little stories. Um, I, yeah, I was diligent and I enjoyed it. I think um, there was a lot of things in that time that were tricky. I guess when my father passed away, a lot of different things happened. So, and the south of Spain, um, my parents had like a, mm, I guess a nightclub type place in the south of Spain. So those, like a theater, they started as a theater and then it turned into more of a nightclub. And it's a big party scene, the south of Spain. Like for a, a lot discotheque? Of yeah, like a discotheque, exactly. <laughs> um, I, I love that call. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so I think that was probably part of it too. It was like, you know, there's a lot of wild stuff as well going on, Nece- not necessarily um, driven by us, but we were around it and it was norm. There was a, The norm was was different, yeah. Wow. Um, so you, you enjoyed learning. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And um, do you? Ha- Here's a question for you: Did you have a particular teacher that really stood out for you in your high school years? Um, you know, it's funny. I had when I think about a teacher that really stood out for me. Well, I had this math teacher. Um, the school I did was a IB program, and um, I was in a math class with like three other boys, and we were in the high math class. And there was this woman teacher, 
and it's really terrible but I her name doesn't come to mind and I've tried this a few times I'm like and but when you say that it's like um I think the other day when Sal said something you're not going to remember the things people said or what they do but how they made you feel mm. um in assembly the other day and I think she was someone that she was this amazing woman that was gentle but really believed in me and I think because I was the only girl probably in this group um and so yeah she, I, I, she comes to mind when I think a teacher that really inspired me to be my best uh, I'm gonna go a little bit deep here how do you know that she believed in you like what were the characteristics of someone that you felt believed in you what what, what does that look like um again you know I don't remember the words um I remember the feeling it's it's a feeling of being backed. Um, it's a feeling of being seen. Um, it's a feeling of being kind of um, believed in somehow. Like, you know, that they see something that you're not even sure you're seeing, especially as a teenager. Um, but you, you feel seen and you feel, like, supported. Acknowledged. Yeah. Safe. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's good to hear. Mm. I think I need to be reminded of that mm. regularly. Mm. And like you just said, that saying, like people don't remember what you say or how, what you said to them. Or what you how, did. But what you did, but how you, you made them feel. Yeah. It is really powerful. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and I, yeah I definitely feel that with key people. Mm. Yeah, it's a good call. Mm. It's a really good call. So um, high school years and, it, um, you know, and I'm really – that that moment of losing uh, a parent mm. is such a profound uh, life uh, moment that you know many people experience, mm. and um, and I'm just curious if you don't mind me asking, like, do you do you think it uh, altered your direction in life in any way? Um, I, yeah, probably. Um, I think for me, my dad was someone I that was my kind of. Um, I guess academic person, and so I, I have thought about it. I don't know, you know. I I don't know is the is the bottom, but I feel like it was kind of a beacon for me that got a bit blurred at some stage. Um, I can you know postulate whether it was. Uh, oh, thank Keep you. Go, sorry. <laughs> Keep going. Um, you know, yeah. So I think it did. Is is the short answer? Is I definitely think it, it altered my life. It altered who I am, without a doubt. It altered my, um, yeah, so many parts of who I am. Was it, um, you said he was the, like when you were studying and, and learning, he was the person you'd go to for academic advice or help with mm. assignments and homework and stuff like that, yeah? Mm. He mm. was that guy? Yeah, yeah. It's really was. cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it was, and I think I can acknowledge it now, you know, and I think I've said at times in my life that, he kind of gave me as much when he died as he did in his life because, you know, I don't know, I don't know if that's a, a truth or not, but I feel like that's how much that impacted me is as much as what he gave me while he was alive. It altered who I am in a, in a way like that. So I think, yeah, it did alter. <laughs> I just had to, yeah, that's, that's really amazing. I've never actually thought of it like that, you mm. know. Wow, yeah, I just had some really crazy thoughts come up actually, mm. yeah. But yeah, okay, I, because I actually haven't been there yet mm. with that stuff mm. and um, yeah, I, I haven't actually thought of, of, of what it would look like afterwards. Mm. So 
Thanks yeah. for sharing that. I, I don't. I hope it's not too no, sensitive to okay. talk yeah, about. Look, I, I think it's been a long time, but it's still it's still there and yeah. in a beautiful way. Yeah. Um, I wish it hadn't happened. Yeah. But uh, it did, and and it is what it is. Mm. You know, and um, yeah, I think teenage years is a hard one to lose a parent. So I agree. I kids that go through that, it's it's quite a vulnerable mm. time. Yeah. So high school. It, Graduated high school in mm-hmm. Spain and then did you where did you transition straight to university or other study after that or I did. I um I went to study marine biology or zoology in Rhode Island. Oh wow um, so in America. I, in America, yeah. Oh cool. So I went to Rhode Island and I did um a year of zoology there with a focus of wanting to do um, marine science. And then I ended up doing an exchange to Australia, to Townsville, to James Cook University that has a really good uh, marine program. Um, and so I did a, I went to do a time abroad and I never went back. <laughs> <laughs> Let me guess. You met, the man, you met the man of your dreams in Townsville. <laughs> did you, did you? Was it in Townsville you yeah. met? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so you were a studying marine biologist on mm-hmm. the Great Barrier Reef? Yes. Oh, God, how romantic is yeah, that? Yeah, I know. Neither of us ended up doing it, but it's a... Big part of it. And your husband's from Sydney. He is. Yeah. So he was visiting Townsville and... He was also doing marine biology. Oh, so we cool. both were studying. Yeah. Got you. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Did you... And you graduated with a degree in marine biology? Or yeah. So zoology? I did um, uh, marine science and then I did a master's in conservation management. Um, and then Sam... Yeah. And Sam did straight marine biology. Yeah. Wow. And did you pursue a career in that afterwards or...? No. So what happened... I'd been away from home for quite a while then. And so... I really wanted to head back to Spain um, and Sam came with me. So we moved back to Spain after completing our degrees and um, we just needed to get jobs. <laughs> so there wasn't much marine biology going on in the south of Spain then. So um, I ended up getting into production, so photography production. So through as life goes, one person meets another and I started working in, in production down in the south of Spain, and Sam was working in restaurants. My brothers had restaurants, so he was helping them out with things. So we were there for a few years doing that. Um, yeah, so, and then we kind of, it, it's tricky because we both just kept taking, putting one foot in front of the other based on what we had done work-wise. So that was the path. So we never kind of veered back into marine biology. We just kept stepping. Like building upon. Yeah, the foundations you were setting. Yeah, so whatever we did, we kind of then you got an extra, you know. So, I think it's that time in life that life just takes its own path. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff around what do you want to be and who you're gonna, you know, what's your career. I, I, I love that. I love the idea of that. It didn't happen for me. We just got into life, and then life happened, and then we just kept stepping from one step, one thing and, to the and next. Kind of like moved with the energy. Yeah. We just moved with what was there and then we, we, you know, I had been working in production so then it was easy to get another job in production. And when, when, yeah. when you say production, could you maybe break that down? Like, are you a photographer? No, so I worked as a production manager in, for, for, for photography uh, in, in a studio and we did a lot of, you know, ads and um, catalogs and so that stuff. So I was more on the background kind of logistics side. Oh, yeah. cool. Yeah. Okay. And... Uh, is it safe for me to say that you were still a conservationist at your core? Absolutely. Yeah. Because <laughs> I guess maybe when you did go to university, you you know, you were driven by conservation. Mm. I guess anyone that wants to be in marine biology, I think, mm. would have to have that burning desire. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's um, 
yeah, it, it always has been, actually. It's one of those funny things, again, joke in my family that, you know, that was always kind of telling people where to put their rubbish. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, without a doubt. And it was hard, you know. Yeah, anyway, it, it comes around. Life keeps coming back to a point. Yeah, and, and so um, so many years in production. and Yeah, so we I worked quite a few years in the south of Spain in production. And then at some point, um, Sam wanted to head back to Sydney. So we uh, packed up and we moved back to Sydney. And I ended up, um, so he got into work there and I got a job, you know, I don't know, yeah, luck, I suppose. But I ended up getting a job in production in film in Sydney. And the first film I worked on was Star Wars. Oh, that really? Was filmed in Sydney. So I worked as the head of the photography department for Star Wars, the third episode. Yeah. Okay, is that the one, look, listen, to all the Star Wars fans out there, I, I after Return of the Jedi, I was done. What was the one? Oh no, Empire Strikes no. Back. What Look, was the my thir- brother will kill me because he loves stars. I don't know. <laughs> the first three, you know, the first three originals. I'm old enough to remember those. Like, and then everything after that's a blur. Yeah, the ones that got re-released in the what late nineties. Uh, yeah. Look, I'm so sorry. I, I'm all, I'm the same as you. Before I was going flying back for the interview um, for Star Wars when we left Spain. I was going back, and I said to my brother, "I you need because he loves Star Wars. He's a He's a big fan and collector of all sorts of things. Um, and I said, I, you need to tell me something about I know nothing about Star Wars. Can we watch them? Um, so we, we did that. And, yeah, so it's the – so I think it goes four, five, six, the first ones. And so then it went back to one, two, three. That's right, the prequels. Yeah. Are, are they the ones you worked yes. on? At Fox Studios in Sydney? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I know the area yeah. well. Wow, yeah. like what an experience. Oh, it was amazing. Because I mean, yeah. it's a pretty big scale production. And I actually remember when it came to town. I remember it was, it was in the newspapers, mm-hmm. like they're going to do Star Wars mm-hmm. at Fox Studios in Sydney. Yeah, no, it was amazing to be part of. It and was so really you were head fun. of photography. Yes, so it was a team. So there was three photographers and their assistants and then a whole team. So a lot of what happens is they have to log every single part. They have a huge database of, of imagery in the Lucas, yeah. So, oh, so you were working for George Lucas? Yes, for Lucas Films. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So he was directing them, and yeah. So as I sit here with my Zoom H6 and my mobile phone and my and my laptop, you must think this is a pretty average production. No, not at all. I'm easily <laughs> impressed. <laughs> I'm embarrassed now. No, no, I just I just did what I had to do. Yeah. I wasn't, I was wasn't it? Was that a lot of stress? I suppose it was stress, but it's a time in life that stress is fun. Yeah. yeah, that's what you're doing. You know, it's intense. It was fun. Yeah. No, I don't. Rec- I don't remember it being stressful. It was. I think I was stretching. You know, constantly you're kind of in there, and it's some big. You know, if you let the ego come in, you feel like, oh my god, what am I doing here? Yeah. Um, but uh, no, it was amazing. It was did really fun. How long did that take? How many was it years? Um, well, yeah, they, they one sh- one was maybe I mean between pre-production shoot and then post. I think it was probably eight months for okay. each. You know, something like that. Yeah. Did you have to deal with some pretty big egos? Um, I don't think I was important enough to deal with many <laughs> big egos. <laughs> um, no, there's funny <laughs> stuff going on. I think you know. There's, You're important uh, enough. No, you know, in that place. Oh, no, I'm, no, no, my, my self-love is growing. But um, no, I think they were, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah definitely, probably. There was you a lot just going got on. in and did yeah, what just, you had to do. Exactly, I just did my job and wow. it was great. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, I think film is a really fun industry to be in. 
at a certain time in life. Yeah. I mean, I, I listen to what you're saying and it sounds very like I start to romanticise like being on set. And I actually have been on the set of a, of a few little things. Like mm. I, I was actually in two commercials there when you I was go. young. Yeah. <laughs> that was my, and I got to see a glimpse of what goes on, you know, but uh, not to that scale. Mm. But I can imagine that it's not all glitz and glamour and there's probably a, a lot of hard work that goes yeah. on, yeah. Yeah, there's some really hard work. There's long hours. Um, yeah, I think most people actually on a set are not necessarily people that were like, I want to be in film one day. I think it's a lot of people that just work really hard and happen to get into it. And, you know, whether you're gaffers or camera or whatever it is, um, there's so many different really specific roles. There's a lot of standing around. And then when you're on, you're really on. So I think it's this crazy space. Yeah. It's really interesting. So this is pre-children. Yes. And um, after that stage in your life, so, you know, you've moved to Sydney and you've, you've, you've had this amazing experience with a, a George Lucas film. What was, what was next after that? Was, it, was um, it family time or did you... Yeah, so it kind of went from film to film for a while and then, um, and then yeah, we got pregnant with Finn. So uh, I was 28 um, and, yeah, then that was it. And, you know, Sam and I consciously decided that one of us was going to stay and be with the kids. Um, it's not always easy decision to make, and there's, we all know there's many many layers to that. And um, so, yeah, so that was kind of what we decided. We we're in Sydney. He'd just started a business, and so we, yeah, we we had Finn, which was our eldest, and then um, Marley was born about two and a half years later, and then Nash, our youngest, about three years after that. So, yeah, so I really kind of I worked for a while in, with contacts I had in film while I was had the kids, but it was really quite remote work. Um, that I did, so I kind of stayed in the loop for a while uh, with kids and just trying to juggle um, with support of my mother-in-law and different, you know, the, the juggle that every parent does. Mm. Um, While your husband was establishing a new business. Yes, yeah, exactly. So, um, and then, yeah, so that's kind of, that's how I stepped out of film, was really the, the gift of the kids okay. that gave me. <laughs> and, and that was a gift and a blessing? Look, of- I think... Um, For me, and I can only speak for myself, it was an opportunity to step off the path that I probably would have kept going on. That's maybe the kind of person I am, or maybe it was just... But I probably would have just kept putting one foot in front of the other and staying in that career, I guess. So it really gave me... I don't think film has a lot of tolerance for children. It's, you know, not, not in a bad way. It's just the expectation is all or nothing. So it wasn't really, it was hard to continue. So it really gave me an opportunity to step out. Um, so, yeah, that was a gift. Yeah. Like, did you, like, when you started to have some success with it, like, um, did other jobs in that industry become easier and start to come to you a lot easier? I think it's just a network, you okay. know, especially yeah. somewhere like Sydney. Maybe it's everywhere. I don't know. That's just where I have worked in film. And so it's, you know, someone. It, you know, it's just a filtering down. Everyone likes their team, so. But then did you start to become career-driven in it? So you started having a little bit of success with it and it was really something you enjoyed. Did you start becoming like, like I want to I wanna take this to the next level, I want to climb the ladder, I guess? Um, I can't say I did because, I mean, I think maybe subliminally I thought I would, but the reality was I was pretty young still and I was just, you know, uh, you get contracted, so it's it's contract work. 
So really you finish one and all you're worrying about is just getting another job. Okay. I wasn't really in a space that I was kind of like, oh, what's my trajectory? Okay. I wasn't, I, I, I wasn't, maybe I was just young and. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, it, look, I listened to that and I just think it sounds really cool, but having children and your husband with it and your business and you're working in that, I can imagine it'd be quite stressful. Mm. Time, it would have been a stressful time in your life. I think having kids is, it's especially, you know, for us, we didn't plan to have kids. It wasn't like, okay, we're going to do, we'd been together for a long time. We'd been together um, almost 10 years, I think, by then. But we were not, our life wasn't in a place that we were like, we're going to have kids. Yeah. So I think that was tough. We weren't prepared. I don't know if you ever will be prepared. I'd probably not. Um, So I think that was tough. We just, it was a lot of growth we had to do quickly and kind of work out who we were as a family really quickly um but then there's nothing quick about having kids so it just keeps changing yeah um so yeah i suppose it, it was tough but uh, no tougher than anyone else probably <laughs> how do you manage when times are tough do you have strategies in place that you put in place um different times in my life i've had different ways that i've dealt with it i suppose you know if i think back to that time i i think i just kept just doing what I knew I had to do, especially kids. There's nothing like kids to bring you back to what's just needed. Um, today, I'd say, you know, definitely through meditation and self-heal, you know, it's just you have in, those, intro. You have those practices in your life? Yes. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah. Any particular ones that you want to share? Um, I just, I, I like the idea of rituals. So um, the morning's really sacred for Sam and I. Like we're like, the earlier you get up, the better. <laughs> and I think when you have kids, you really value that because, yeah. You do. And I've actually, I'm now getting up at 4.30 yeah, yeah. a.m. To, to beat the kids up. Yeah. 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 It used to be like I'd get up at 5.30 or 6 o'clock. Mm-hmm. But now I, that's that's late. Yeah. yeah. No, it, and it's beautiful time of the day. And so, yeah, just, you know, a cup of tea, candle, meditation. It's just a, a basis for a day. It is. Mm. Uh, um, it's, it's only in my sort of late like re- more recent years i've really valued the importance of the morning routine mm. and um there's a saying that i love and it's if you win the morning you win the day mm. and I, love, I do like yeah. that and not to say that getting up early meditating is winning the morning but um definitely definitely i notice a difference when i don't do it yeah. i don't I don't handle I don't handle life as well mm. <laughs> on that day. Yeah. On that day, yeah. <laughs> I start again the next day. I mean, I, I don't even know if I handle life well on on, on the days I do, but it just <laughs> gives me why just a bit of ref. You know, um, it just gives you an, an opportunity to not hit the ground running. I think that's kind of how I feel. Like if I have the time, then by the time the morning comes and the sunrise and the kids wake up, I feel ready to embrace the next phase because I've had time. Yeah. yeah. It's so, it's so great yeah, to hear someone really say nice. that. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So let's let's go back to let's go back. So you uh, you guys started your family and you had three wonderful boys and um, did you settle into suburban housewife lifestyle in in Sydney? Um, probably. I mean, we lived in the inner city, so we lived in uh, Surrey Hills, and uh, but I think it becomes a community and it becomes a routine and um, there's nothing. You know, it's beautiful for what it is and for a time. Um, I think it was always things that drove me. Like I started to try and figure out, I was doing design projects, trying to do 
products and there was a whole bunch of little projects that I kept kind of working on to I guess keep me sane in in my own words but it was kind of just something else that I was doing um that I kept kind of having fire my belly was on fire about um so I did little things and I you know engage in different ways with community and and do stuff and I had a really yeah we had a beautiful life you know and the kids had us you know they had me there so I think I'd never changed that now in hindsight, it, was, it wasn't always easy and there was probably a lot of sacrifice in, in different ways of maybe my career or what I saw of it. But in hindsight, it always makes sense. So yeah. I'm learning that. I mean, you, now that you're, your kids are getting older and they're in school, mm. I mean, are you ex- re-exploring that, that stuff now? Like your past career and things you could be involved in? Um, no, I'm, I'm pretty in generous and grateful right now. Yeah. I was going <laughs> to so that's, that's consuming most of your energy. Yeah. Yeah. In I'm a in, good way. Yeah. In, a, in an amazing way. Yeah. In an amazing way. Like it's, but it all led there, you know, like, you in many, so? and this is leading somewhere else, you know, like all these different random things that happened end up, you know, getting you to where you are. Do you, do you honestly feel like all your life experiences are, are currently culminating and in, in the generous and the grateful um, organisation? Uh, I don't know if all my life experiences, but I guess it just is what it is. So well, I am here. Well, how, how, did it, how did it evolve? How, did, how was it birthed? How did it The start? generous and grateful? Yeah. Oh. Um, we, so I was kind of looking at a whole bunch of different projects and I have a real passion for sustainability, for kind of waste is something that is big in my just somewhere in my body that I feel. Um, so I started to really try and work out. Um, I'd been doing a few different projects, but I started to try and figure out how to connect. I saw in one part of our society there was so much excess. And, you know, not, not every society, but in Sydney there is. It's a quite an affluent. A lot of Sydney is quite affluent. So there's a lot of, and there's a lot of consumerism. So I saw this huge amount of waste that was going on in one part of our society. But then I also really knew that there was this other section that wasn't so far away, possibly two streets away, that people had nothing. So for me, it was like, how can this be happening? How can one side, there be so much and things are ending up in landfill and these holes are getting bigger and this stuff is being thrown away and it's lasting 300, 400 years, plastic stuff. And on the other side, there's literally people in our community that are sleeping on the floor and that have nothing. And I just kind of started to mull around in my head, like something is not... So I didn't profess to know the answer. So what I did was I started to email a whole bunch of... I I created questionnaires and I started to just send out to agencies and caseworkers that I thought, I don't know the answers, but they might. So I just said, you know, would you help me try and figure out... I've got an idea and I'd love to hear your experience because I don't have it. Um, So I sent emails out to a bunch of caseworkers and agencies... And then I also um, connected to a lot of everyday people and tried to ask them, you know, what's going on in your life? How do you get rid of waste? So I I started to just try and figure out what is happening actually on the ground because I have this idea. Um, And through that, I connected with Carmen, who had started The Generous and Grateful. She had had come from a different path. She had done a lot of amazing stuff. And she had kind of started this organization, and it was was really small, and she had a trailer, and she was doing all this. Um, And so we just connected, and it was kind of like, I was coming from the space of excess and she was really from the social aspect. She's an amazing woman that has done amazing things and she really feels so passionate with refugees and um, so she's really a beautiful, beautiful soul that kind of we connected 
And it was just we came from to the same thing, but from different sides with different strengths. So that was the beginning kind of that of that next thing. So I didn't it wasn't a target. It wasn't like this is it was just, again, this rolling part of life that got me somewhere and a door open. And I couldn't I don't think you can strategize your life. You know, you, you I really am learning more and more that if you let go, you better things come than you can uh, than you can plan. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing because, yeah, uh, I feel that. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Mm. It's surrender, isn't it? Yeah. Surrendering. Yeah, and trust. But not being – I've had to learn that surrendering doesn't actually mean losing mm. and doesn't actually mean being lazy either. Mm. Mm. And that's kind of what you're saying. Yeah. I think it's just our mind can only grasp so much. So when we only trust our mind to try and work everything out, it's kind of limiting, um, is is what I've I've felt, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think it's that beautiful thing of actually just following something that burns, um, and trusting that if you keep stepping, it'll it could actually get you somewhere much better than you might get yourself all on your own in your own little bubble with your own little mind. Um, so that that was kind of that journey, and I couldn't have planned it. I couldn't have. I couldn't have done generous and grateful on my own. You know, karma was the amazing. I, I, it was just that life brought that. I, I really believe that these people are placed in your life for a reason mm. when you're ready at the mm. right time. Like, mm. you know, really, like, it's no, maybe it's no coincidence. Yeah, I, no. I, don't know. I mean, yeah, it, I guess again, like, I, I keep trying to um, look at life. Like, it's, it's not good or bad, it just is. Um, and so it just was what it was, but I just definitely feel it was, I, I couldn't have strategized my way there. So you and Carmen weren't necessarily friends prior to the generous and the grateful, like you were kind of on your own little, you know, mission and, and she was on her own and it just became a really good collaboration, correct? Exactly, yeah. So you're, and you're in a conservationist yeah. from a sustainable yeah. background and then, Maybe her inner social worker or yeah. wealth, welfare, yeah. um, you know, she's more yeah, of a welfare. Yeah, she's an amazing so. advocate, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so just to maybe go into a bit more detail, I noticed on your website that you guys are really big into trying to repurpose items such as like white goods, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. And more of like the big ticket items that seem really unattainable for people who are basically uh, destitute at the time. Is that correct or? Yeah, look, we just kind of, um, we currently really focus on um, people that have come through uh, survivors of domestic violence, refugees and youth at risk of homelessness. So um, it's basically they've come through a journey. It's been a hard journey and they have finally secured a home, which is walls and a, or rather they've secured a house. So it's walls and a roof. That's already amazing achievement. Um, and, but how do they secure the things that they need? How, uh, uh, a house without a bed, without a fridge, without a table, without chairs, without all those things. It's a bed, you rest, you sleep, and you might wake up refreshed. You sit with your family around the table. You know, we spoke earlier about the importance of sitting at a table. For so many cultures, that's a huge thing. You don't have fr- a fridge to keep food safe. How do you send your kids to school with a healthy lunchbox? All these really basic things 
that are really hard to access when you've had a hard journey. It's hard to access anyway. They're often expensive. They're hard to carry. You don't have transport. You might not have a network of friends. There's a whole bunch of reasons that it's really hard to get these things at that time when you're moving in. So we kind of looked at it and we're like, well, these are the really hard things that many people don't want to touch. Um, but they are around. They're, people are throwing them away. How can we help connect this excess to these people? And they, you know, in Sydney, I can I say, they're often two streets away from each other. It's not often, but they, they have been. I, I I've did scheduling for a long time. We pick up here, you're dropping it off two, st- two doors down, and they never know that these people exist. Yeah. I've, I mean, I've lived in Darlinghurst. Mm. I lived there when I was younger. And mm. yeah, it, it's that, that contrast between mm. rich and And it's poor. unseen. You know, mm. I think there's a lot of people that think, oh, this is homelessness. So that's, you know, there's these labels that you think you know, but we don't know. There's so many stories that people, you don't see. You know, and I try and really as much as possible remind myself, even walking along here, there's all these different characters and all these different people and all these different, and it's like, I don't know. That person that might look like, you know, they're doing this show here on the beach actually may have so much pain and they may have gone through something really huge and they they may be amazing at something. We just don't know. And we try so hard in our society to just box people into these categories. But everyone has a story. Everyone has so much depth. Most people have pain. Most people have joy. Most people have hopes. You know, so in the end, it's we we just walk around thinking that we see but we really don't. And I think that's something generous and grateful. We always look at, um, people sometimes ask, oh, who's the generous and who's the grateful? And, and it's like, it's just a moment and you are all things at different times. I may sit today and be able to give you something and I don't know in two days what I might need that you suddenly become the giver. And it's just a moment. And I think with labels, it's really hard, with, especially I think people that have gone through a hard time to have these labels that people assume are on them forever. And, and it's not. It's just a moment. They may have been a successful something or other, and then something happened, two or three things, and here they are, and they need help, and that's it. It's not a forever, and so I feel really passionate about just, we're just there in that time, at that moment, and that's it. And we hope we help. We may not. I don't know, but all I know is that if I can take what there is and give it to someone that needs it at that time, then that's enough for me right now. Um, but it's not about who they are or forever. It's just what they're going through then. And I might need it one day too. <laughs> you might. Yeah. Why do you think we label? I think it's safe. You know, it makes us feel safe. Um, it's easier. It's easier to box things. Our brain naturally wants to just... I think it's probably something that from ancient... You know, we probably... There's something in us that had to assess very quickly. Um and put survival people in boxes. So, yeah, something survival in there. Um, but in today's age, there's just so much labeling, and sometimes not even you know most most of it's on a computer screen or on a phone. You know? Listening to what you're saying, you seem like a really empathetic person. Hmm. Have you become more empathetic since involving yourself in this? Um, because I've you're you are getting sorry to cut you off there. Hmm. Because you're starting to actually see and understand the other side a little bit more or, or the situation's a bit clearer. You're seeing, mm. you're seeing them in a little bit more depth. Mm. Um, I, you know, I can't say I've walked in their shoes. So, but I'm aware 
of maybe what they need, one part of what they need. Um, I feel incredibly honored to be in that space. Um, I also am aware that it's not going to save them, or and they're incredibly resilient, and they'll find other ways. And I'm not the, you know, I'm not really. I hope I help. That's you know, that's yeah. it. And so, empathy, I think, is something that um, is really, really powerful. And sometimes we have more of it, and sometimes we don't. You know, mm. I may have empathy over here, but then maybe I can be really judgmental over there about something else. You know, someone yeah. like I don't know. I don't want to say president, oh, no. president's names, but you know. <laughs> There's, I can be very, you know, very <laughs> narrow in my vision of who I want to be empathetic hey, to. So. Say whatever you like. <laughs> yeah. So we all have our, um, yeah, our things, right? I get it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is it is it mainly like um, like so? From what I understand, it sounds like you you guys are really passionate about you know making someone's house a home when they're restarting, hmm. and I think that is really crucial because if their house doesn't become a home. Like I know having a lot of friends that uh, grew up in com- uh, community and government housing, there was often very little respect for the, the places that were provided to them um, But un- until they made it their own. Mm. So mm. do you think that's what's really been powerful in, in helping people, um, you know, rebuild their lives like, is that what you're trying to do like making <laughs> making spaces that are more livable from recycled repurposed mm. you know furniture and, yeah. ma- and materials I think dignity is a big one dignity you know, okay. i think that's a really big one um and th- different people feel differently about their things you know it's not but i think if you can um if someone can have beautiful things in their home, they are more likely to invite people over or they, you know, we have stories that are so beautiful and it's really hard for us to get a lot of stories because we're a little bit removed from the end recipient. But, you know, there's stories of like a, an elderly man that we delivered a couch, and, you know, couch is a couch. And he's like, oh, I can have my grandson over and we can watch <sighs> cartoons together. You know, so what's a couch worth? Or, a, you know, a family that got a table and the mom was like, I can finally get the family around and eat dinner together. So there's these kind of different, and it's unexpected what means something to somebody. You know, they're always different. But I think, and to have something beautiful, and and to have someone say, you deserve it, and that's it. Mm. You don't owe me. You don't. It, n- not nothing. I don't. Actually, I never even met you, and I, I, I never will. Maybe. Um, but you know, as an organization, we work through caseworkers only, so never direct with client. So we just provide it. But it's like we care to source only good things. You know, and we care, we think about how we package them and who the client might be, and we don't know much about them, but we try and kind of piece together. So caseworkers are connecting you with... Yes. Okay, and on a day-to-day basis, what does it look like? Um, I mean, are you going around the Sydney Council cleanups? You know, you have people in Sydney, inner city especially, where they have the monthly council cleanup Mm. where you can throw away big items and everyone puts it out on the street. I mean, I don't know how many barbecues me and my friends acquired yeah. from that. Like barbecues and lounges are a big one. Yeah. I mean, you'd often see a lot of old mattresses. Yeah. But have you guys come across some stuff that is in such amazing condition and you can't believe people are throwing it out? Yeah, I mean, we don't do that because we really are very careful with quality control. So we um, – look, supply is not an issue. You know, it's so really um, – and neither is demand. Really? Um, so not an issue. There's so much stuff. stuff sh- and is, a lot of it is... Um, look, the only thing that is hard is fridges and washing machines. Um, we Those are hard to get 
fridges and washing machines aren't, aren't hard. But everything else, there's so much stuff. And really most of it, um, we're on our website, we'll do call-outs. It's word of mouth. Um, we work a lot with corporate. So corporate is becoming a really big part of what we do. So big hotel decants, so big projects. So that's really becoming the really, you know, how much effort for return. Because when we're going out to pick up one bed and one thing, it, 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 the, the, the formula doesn't quite work. Um, so the corporate space, there's so much amazing stuff that is going straight to landfill if you're not able to fit their little timeline with their, you know, or work with amazing people that are willing to shift just a little bit their focus and adapt a little bit and redirect the truck your way and allow you to kind of select the good quality and take away the waste. So that's really become our key source is through corporate. Would it be safe to say that you could almost save them money for the dumping fee as well, mm. to take it yeah, off their hands. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the way they're structured and we're learning, we're learning so much. Um, so it's not necessarily what they're interested in. There's, there's different levels of who pays that. and um, But it's absolutely, they would be paying ton per ton that yeah. they send to Landville, so without a doubt. But most companies also, when you give them a, a good solution, they want to do the right thing. Gotcha. You know, most people, you just have yeah. to make it fit. You know, with yeah. So as long as it's not inconvenience. Yeah, inconvenience or kind of can they can adapt their model and they can do a few small shifts that will work. But why do they want to throw good stuff away in the first place? I don't think they want to, but oh well, it's just you know you look at a five star hotel and they have a very clear you know the 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 edge starts fraying of so they have like a seven year, I think just set cycle. That's when they have to re to keep their five stars. There's all this. You know, and in, yeah, so there's so much refurb. And uh, offices, I can't even, you can't even get started. I don't even, I don't know what to do with that. But wow. there's so many refurbs. Is it always near the end of the financial year? <laughs> <laughs> it would be. Um, well, a lot of these projects are ongoing. Like, yeah. they're big. So, okay. you know, there's like an eight-month decant and they're building by floors. And so wow. there's a lot of kind of long-term things. It's not necessarily a one-off. Thing. Amazing. Yeah, so it's great. It's amazing wow. stuff. That's the stuff that really fires me. Yeah. Mm. I mean, you know, there's the um, the Smith family. Mm. I, know, I know they're really big on, you know, furniture and, and helping deliver it and stuff like that. I think they've even done it for my family back mm. back in the day. But, you know, they are, they're, they're overrun. They can't keep up with mm. the supply and the demand mm. by the looks of things. So do you think that you're actually supporting, supporting um, organisations like that as well? Yeah, or I mean, absolutely. We, um, you know... We have about 13 or 14 uh, agencies that we work with currently. And we've got, uh, you know, Mission Australia, Wesley Mission, um, Salvation Army. So we're supplying stuff to some of their departments. And these are huge organizations, but we have small touch points with them because they have different models. Um, so, yeah, w- I mean, th- the thing is, Carmen and I always say, you know, th- the only way for us to work effectively is to collaborate. And gotcha. so a lot of times in, in charity spaces, a lot of just segmented parts all working really hard for what seems to be limit, limited resources, limited money, limited. But really, if we can all get really good at little parts of what we do and work collaboratively, which we are starting to do more and more with different agencies, like with Lifeline, we'll, we'll get a hotel decant and um, they can't, we, we don't do artwork, for example. Uh, and so we will take it because we know if not, it's going straight to landfill and we will get them to come pick it up and they sell it in their shops. Whereas they don't take fridges and washing machines. So they'll accept it and deliver it to us. So there's this kind of organic way, small, 
that we're just starting to be like, wait a minute, we're, you know, we, everyone, we can actually all raise each other up and we're all actually trying to help a lot of the same people and for the same reasons and in different ways, which is beautiful. But yeah, so collaboration is huge and we're trying to work out, you know, small, starting small, but figure out how to do that more effectively. Yeah. And it will, it'll, it'll get better. Mm. It'll get easier. Mm. Wow. Mm. So cool. So, I mean, that's where you're up to now in life, really, you think. Yeah. Like it's, I mean, it's consuming a lot of your spare time, would you say, and, and more? I think you'd say it's taking a lot of my time. Okay, that's yeah. my husband and it's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and too, too much time. But here's, here's a question for you. <laughs> What's the difference between when you were working in a career job and this for you? Is it, does it feel like work? Some parts feel like work. Okay. Um, but it feels, it feels good. It feels like good work. I think work is not necessarily negative. More um, purposeful? Yeah, purpose. I, I think purpose is such a big word that I sometimes I'm not even sure if I understand. I mean, I feel like it feels really good to be doing something um, that I believe in. And uh, it feels really nice to know that it has, um, it has an impact maybe on someone's life. Uh, yeah, I think it's amazing to find something that's your fire, your thing, you know, and it's different for everyone. Like this just happens to be mine. There's, you know, I think you go into that space of what, you know, someone's dharma and someone's dharma might be to feed their family and the way they have to do that is sweep the street. It doesn't mean that they're living this kind of purposeful life because sweeping the street is doing, is like this amazing job. It's just they're doing what they have to do. So there's all different levels of that. Um, and I, I find it, you know, it's not necessarily people that are in the charity space that are doing anything more or not. It just happens to be something that they have found yeah. and it's what they want to do. That's so cool. I was actually talking to a friend of mine who's been on the podcast, Tim Fidgel, and he made a comment, it was off the cuff comment, but it, it just it sort of rolled around in my head afterwards. He said, he said, sometimes, you know, trying to live and follow your passion, it's, he said, sometimes I think it's a, it's a rich person's luxury. Mm. And I just went, and I don't think he even really thought about what he said, you know, he, like he, we were just having a conversation and, and I thought, you know what, like it's really interesting because like I was with your son today in the rice fields mm. in, in um, Saban Kajar and working at uh, the Subak and um, developing the community garden so we can help the rice, the rice farmers uh, improve their soil quality. And, uh, and they, they, those rice farmers work amazingly hard you know um and in the in in the hottest conditions you could ever imagine but they are so at peace and so happy and it's primarily driven by they are so satisfied with the fact that they are feeding their community mm. you know and and like like exactly what you just said it's not about they're not thinking about the labor the labor of it has a whole new purpose mm, mm. and that purpose is so much greater than the than the physical mm. suffering but mind you some of them are 80 years old yeah. and they're like ripped like they're oh, so yeah. fit Amazing. and they yeah. and then i sometimes think about the modern lifestyle that you know some of us are living behind computer screens and you know air conditioning mm. i think uh i don't know mm. if we got it wrong sometimes but yeah i, I mean i think Again, I just keep coming back to, you know, we can make the choices that we um, have before us. You know, the, 
and we all have different things before us and we and I absolutely agree with that comment around you know to it, it's a it's a luxury to have choices you know and I think not everyone does it doesn't necessarily lead to more happiness you know I think that's the other thing sometimes and and this is again saying from a very it you know to be able to feed your family without question is an incredible gift and I don't you know mean to say that when you don't have the choice but I think sometimes our world is quite complex and you take away the need for just basics and suddenly you find problems elsewhere um so yeah I'm not I'm not exactly sure I can just speak from my little space of what I see before me uh, and I love I love your space it's a great <laughs> space it's really it's been it's been an epic conversation it's been an an hour and 11 minutes. Wow. How, how are you feeling? You yeah. tired? You had enough? Had yeah. enough of me? I'm going to be getting up in a few hours, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I could, let's talk all night. Like, um, yeah, no, look, listen, it's, you know, no, it's I'm, I'm, I've really enjoyed it. I Like, I am really inspired by your cause. Um, I ask all guests to come on the on the show with to come with a cause and, and they will advocate often for a charity or, or a social enterprise or something they, they believe in. And it doesn't necessarily need to be a charity. But I guess in your case, like um, uh, the generous and the grateful is, I guess, a cause. that, mm. um, And I will actually put the link to that in your show notes. Yeah, um, and which will go on the terriblehappytalks.com website, um, which then will follow this episode around on iTunes, Spotify, Buzzsprout, Stitcher and Google Podcasts. And um, But is there any other causes or, I guess, anything you believe in that you'd like to advocate for? Um, I, I guess what I'd like to say and to plant a seed is um, given, you know, the devastating fires recently in Australia and globally, um, I find every tree so precious and so important. So I think if people can look for ways to get involved in tree planting, um, and there's many different ways and wherever you are, um, but I think they're the lungs of our planet. They are amazing. Um, everything is in them, sunlight, water, air. It's, um, and they're just so precious. So, yeah, if you can get out there and plant some trees in whatever way you can, I'd say do it. I love that. It's the best. Yeah. Um, hey, I've got a fun fact for you. Nice. Trees, like humans inhale oxygen and we exhale carbon dioxide, CO2. Trees absorb CO2 and then release oxygen. Mushrooms, fungi, also breathe in oxygen like humans. Wow. Did you know? I didn't know that. I just found out. <laughs> I know. Wow. Amazing. There's a I fun fact. <laughs> I don't know if you can plant mushrooms or you can grow mushrooms in your own, whatever. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah, cool. If you didn't learn anything else tonight, there you go. I yeah. learned lots. Thank you. Mushrooms <laughs> breathe oxygen like humans. Um, now listen, last thing. Uh, every guest that comes on the show, I like to give a little gift. Again, I say this all the time and I'm a one-man show and I'd like to one day give my guests like a nice gift, like a T-shirt or a coffee cup or something like that. But, um, <laughs> you know. I'm small. I'm a small. I'm a small guy. I'm a small enterprise. So all is good. All guests get, and as I dig into my bag of tricks, don't get too excited. <laughs> Mary Poppins. I feel like Mary Poppins. My wife loves that movie. I've never. I've never seen it. Oh, and did one. you know my wife has never seen a Star Wars movie? Well, I was like, with her not it, long ago. Really? 
And you worked on the movies. <laughs> well, before I worked. It was almost a deal breaker because – and she'd never seen E.T. And she didn't tell me this till after we got together. <laughs> so every, every guest that's been on the show gets the THD, which is the Terrible Happy Talk Circle Logo Sticker. And this is only for guests that have been on the show. So you're now a Terrible Happy Talks alumni. Thank so you So if you see much. someone else with this sticker – it means they've been on the show. I like it. That's so, great. Thanks a for badge. being on. It's a, Thank it's you like very a badge, much. but it's just a sticker. I love it. Can you stick it somewhere strategic, yeah. like your coffee mug or yeah, something? Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I'll find a good spot for it. <laughs> or you can wear it with pride. You, you don't have to. You don't have to. There's no <laughs> pressure there. There's no, I, won't, I won't judge. You won't come looking. <laughs> I won't come looking. I won't come looking. You're like I'll still I'll okay. still be really grateful <laughs> and generous. <laughs> Thank you. You are. But thanks for being on the show and. Um, yeah. Thank you very much. Oh. It's been an honor. Okay. <laughs> See ya. Bye. <laughs>